Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 22nd, 2016. This is episode 1920 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Thursday. That means it's time for a listener call show. That's where you call your calls into 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. Call that number, leave your message, do it like the callers you're going to hear today, be brief, be to the point. If you have a question, ask your question. If you have a point, make your point, one or two sentences, then give me details. Trust me, your call will go better, you'll be more likely to get through my screening process and end up on the air. If you don't want to use your phone, you can go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on the speak pipe button, and as long as you have a microphone or if you're on your smartphone, you can use that, and that'll also get a message into me. And remember, you can always get to thesurvivalpodcast.com really quickly on those mobile devices, those little buttons, or even on your computers, by just going to tspc.co, tspc.co will redirect you to thesurvivalpodcast.com and save you some time. Anyway, um, do want to tell you this before I tell you the calls we're going to be taking today. It is the last show of this year, other than the Christmas special that will run tomorrow. Okay, so this is the last you know new episode of TSP this year. We will be running TSP rewinds in the week between Christmas and New Year's. I am off. It's a tradition in the Spirico household. From before the Spirico household was a household, when it was just me. Back in my days working as a contractor in the telecommunications industry, that industry just kind of sends you home for that week. So I just maintained that to holiday pay, whatever I had to. And I've always decided that that would be the time that, you know, of the year I don't go on vacation somewhere else. I'm right here. My family needs me. I'm here 24-7. So um, that's what will be going on next week. But with call-ins, with call-ins, if you've called in this year and you have not heard your call, and you do not hear your call today. I'm not saying that they'll all go away. There's always, it's always good to have some stuff in reserve if I have a light week of calls or whatever. But officially, anyway, all calls in 2017 will be calls that occur, well, not in 2017, after today, after today. So once today's over, if you call, you go to the new folder. The old folder will be archived uh, with what's left in it. So that means it's a clean slate. It's a good time to get your calls in for the new year. Uh, we'll be doing a uh, listener call show, first call back. Well, not first show back. I think it's the third or fourth show back. But first week back, we'll be doing a new listener call show with all new calls. So get them in. Today, what are we doing to clean out the calls box? Here's what we've got. I have a listener asking me about questions on what's called the Urban Carry Holster. And this is actually a brand of holster. I have some thoughts on it. I have not used it, but I have some thoughts on it. I have somebody asking me about, or not really asking me, but talking about pushing the boundaries, kind of inspired by Toby Hemingway, where he, we talked about being you know, legal but not legible to the state and pushing the boundaries of what one can do with permaculture and some thoughts on that. Uh, I have a bunch of what-ifs on driverless cars, but what if this and what if that, and we'll talk about that when we get there. I have a Southpaw calling in. You know what a Southpaw is, right? Left-hand person, right? So Southpaw caller coming calling in. Lifetime shooter says, you don't need left-handed guns. Don't worry about it. I have a few thoughts on where you might disagree and where you might agree with him, even if you disagree and agree with me. It'll make sense when I talk about it. Um, next up, I have a question 
on a product from Anchor, A-N-K-E-R, who I actually love their products. Uh, but it's Anchor's product called the Powerhouse Backup Power System. I don't hate it. I'm not necessarily going to recommend you buy it either. So I'll kind of give you the ins and outs and how to think about it when we get to it. Uh, I also have a question on the ongoing debate about remote cow-calf operations. So someone called in. They asked Jeff Lawton about this. Jeff Lawton said, here's what I would do. Another guy calls and said, hey, I've been raising cattle my whole life. If you have no experience, you don't want to do this. Another guy calling in, and I'll kind of bring all three back around and say this is why everybody's seeing it a little bit differently, okay? And uh, we'll have some thoughts on the coming holiday season. It's not really a call, but just my thoughts for you as you head into this Christmas weekend, and hopefully some of you at least will be able to take time off or some time off in this interim week. I know this week didn't work. This, this Christmas, New Year's did not work out best for those of you that are, you know, employees, a lot of times it works out really good where you get like really long weekends or you can take one or two vacation days. And this one just didn't, didn't land that way, did it, with Christmas on a Sunday and all. Anyway, before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Next up, our TSP Business Directory sponsor of the day is Schaefer Select Coins. Professional coin consultants that can help grow, sell, or organize your collection. They're located in Pennsylvania. You can purchase online by visiting their website through the TSP Business Directory. And please remember, all MSB members do get 10% off all purchases of silver coins and all coins at Schaefer Select Coins. And remember, you can always do business with members of this community by going to the TSP Business Directory, tspbiz.com. So uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1920. And uh, I have for you today, well, hold on a second. The episode is not 1920, is it? Okay, it's 1921. Because uh, the episode is 1921, the year is 1921. I have two for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have Murder, Mayhem, and the Trial of the Century. And I have The Brown Shirts are here. Additionally, I have notable births. Steve Allen, entertainer who popularized the TV talk show format, is host of The Tonight Show. Many of you guys remember Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. A lot of you guys are going, who's Johnny Carson? And even more are you going, who's Steve Allen? Well, look him up. Gene Roddenberry is born this year. He's a fighter pilot, a policeman, and creator of something called Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, and on the political front, First Lady Nancy Reagan is born this year, astronaut and Senator John Glenn, Senator Jesse Helms, and Betty Friedan, the founder of NOW, is born this year. In other news, 15 million have died from the plague in India so far. This is a 25-year accumulated death toll. 15 million people over 25 years dead in India from the plague. We don't think of the plague as being a modern thing, but it was there. 
Tulsa, Oklahoma is now under martial law. The Tulsa race riots have forced a crackdown on the KKK. It's bad, real bad. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is streaking with polio. He's lost his vice presidential bid to Calvin Coolidge last year. He's 39, and he's in a wheelchair. His political life is over, isn't it? Well, not quite. I'm going to read Murder, Mayhem, and the Trial of the Century because it actually ties into the rise of Hitler, believe it or not, and that's why I'll let the brown shirts go for today. I was crazy to come to this country. Niccolo Sacco on trial for murder in Massachusetts. At the beginning of the 20th century, terror, assassination, and bombs in your mailbox are the order of the day. To the people of the United States, this also means the Italians and the Jews, because whatever one of these terrorist groups is caught, he or she is usually Italian or Jewish, or someone like that is urging them on. FYI, I'm Jewish. This stuff makes me cringe, but some assassins in the 20th century were Jewish in ancestry, not faith. Dear God, not Jewish in faith, and let's move on. By the way, these are Alex's words, not mine. Uh, several men rob a shoe company in Massachusetts, brutally murdering the guard and paymaster. The usual suspects are rounded up. One of them fingers Niccolo Sacco uh, and Bartolomo Valzente, who are Italian. The evidence is thin, so witnesses for the prosecution are convinced, and ballistic evidence is doctored. They are witnesses in favor of the accused, but they are mostly Italians. These guys are hosed. The foregone conclusion is that Sacco and Vincente are bad men who must be stopped dead. Sacco and Vincente are going to fry, but before all that happens, their case will become a worldwide sensation. Poetry will be written. Long essays that would be laughed at by most third-grade grammar teachers will be praised as worthy works of iteration. It makes no sense. Seven years later, Sacco and Vincente will be dead, along with any sense of justice or common sense. <clears throat> The question remains, were Sacco and Vanzetti guilty? I am convinced they were dangerous men, but they probably were not guilty of this crime. We'll never know because either the government or the defense tampered with the evidence, either accidentally or with intent to deceive. Regardless, the big, regarding the bigotry of the time, it was part of the eugenics war building to World War II. Most people blame the Nazis, but eugenics did not originate with them. British and American philosophers led the way with pseudoscientific arguments on race and survival of the fittest. In the real sense, science had become a religion and remains so for many people today. Here's the test. If someone says, I believe in global warming, that is a clear faith statement. Religious people recognize faith statements. On the other hand, global warming has been building for thousands of years. It's not a faith statement. It's either true or false, but it's not a matter of faith. Indeed. Um, I'm wondering how much we're going to get from Alex on the eugenics movement through this period of time, but it's scary. It's scary shit. And it didn't start with Hitler. Hitler was a politician. And what do politicians do? Politicians gauge the wind, and then they cast their sails to the winds in their favor to get whatever they want to get done, done. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't a complete douchebag piece of shit, because he was. Um, and, well, most politicians, I'm... Right, okay. So, but the eugenics movement was being grabbed onto by all the people that it didn't apply to at this time. It's easy to talk about people who you are not part of their group as being less than you. It's easy to talk about your own group as though it's wonderful. okay? And it's, it's often used to deceive the masses. And the masses were being deceived by this, and Hitler utilized it to his agenda. But we started it. We started it. The first ever 
by law, forced sterilizations occur in the United States. We were congratulated by the Germans for having the courage to do it. Yeah, that's real. Maybe we'll hear about it in the history segment, my take, by Jack Spierko. With that, let's go ahead and get into your calls for today's show. And go ahead and take that first call now. Hey, Jack. This is Raven Wyman out of southeast Nebraska. I was wondering if you have any experience with the urban carry holsters. I saw ads on this on Facebook. Um, they're a new concept that I know of anyway, and I haven't really found a good way besides pocket carry, which is inefficient, and was wondering if you or anybody you know has any experience on them and uh, if you would recommend them. Thanks. So I'm going to start out with something on any type of holster, whether it's a concealed carry holster or a open carry holster that I, I have found to be true over the years. What one person loves, another person thinks is okay, and another person thinks is mediocre at best, and another person hates. So I, I think the only real way you'll know if this solution is going to work for you and for the, the gun that you carry and for the person that you are is going to be to make the investment, buy one, and try carrying with it and seeing if it works for you. Uh, I haven't yet. I, I like the I, I like this idea. It seems like something that would work. Um, all of the reviews that I've read, the video reviews I've seen, and the videos on the company's website I've seen look really great. I'll probably reach out to them uh, this coming month and say, hey, would you guys consider sending me one and letting me evaluate it and tell my listeners about it? Because I, I think that's the only way you're really going to know. But I'm going I'm to caveat with that with saying, so I might say I love it and usually you might hate it. And for those that haven't seen it, let's talk about what this thing does. It kind of reminds me of an old carry system that they used to call the pager pal. And it became the cell phone pal when nobody started calling pagers anymore. But it carries even deeper than that. And the way that worked is you had like a thing that looked like it was for your pager or your cell phone on your belt. And when you reached in, you could pull it up and grab your gun and pull your gun out. Well, the way this works is a little bit better design. You're, it's really a deep appendix carry that becomes basically a, an upper thigh carry. But, it, you know, you're right-handed. You'd carry as though you're appendix carrying. And there's a, a piece you can grab of it that's just right there at the belt line. And you can pull the whole holster up with the gun. And the gun kind of sort of comes out of it. And you grab it and get out. When I first looked at it, my first concern was, You know, if I'm carrying, I tend, well, I carry with more conventional concealed carry holster. And if I have to draw one-handed, I can yank a shirt and get it one-handed. And I was concerned that maybe you couldn't with this. You can. And it looks like it may be easier to draw a weapon from a seated position than some conventional carry positions. It looks a hell of a lot more comfortable. Because of the way that the gun is seated in this holster, it's only got a bag, it seems quite safe. The, the Generation 2, whatever they call it, uh, seems like a, a big improvement. What I liked about the company when I was looking at their, their, their marketing was they said, we came out with our first version of this. We had like 90% positive reviews, but we focused on the negative ones and made it better. I like a company that does that. I mean, it's it, sure, it's, it, oh, it's just marketing. Well, maybe it is. 
Uh, but if it's true, and not all marketing is fake, right? Uh, the best marketing is true. If it's true, then that's the kind of company that I want to give my business to. Uh, they did some pretty cool things to it. They put a powerful magnet in the bottom of it where if you take it and hang it upside down, your gun doesn't fall out of it. They made it sleeker. Uh, they made it look to me like it would be more comfortable and more uh, functional, more ergonomic. Um, it's up to you, though, whether you want to carry a, a gun you know, that deep down on your thigh. And I think it's, one of the, again, going to be one of those things where you're going to have to try it to see if it's going to work for you or not. Um, the other thing I like about it is if you, if you carry with a shirt tucked in, which is more difficult to do, and it's I like really to wear my shirts tucked in. I just do. I don't know if it's the one thing that came out of Catholic school growing up that I ended up liking or something, but I just I think a shirt looks better tucked in, and uh, t-shirts, long shirts doesn't matter. I, you know, if it's like a long shirt and it's open, then of course I don't tuck it in. But I mean anything else, I like a shirt tucked in, um, and a lot of times I don't because it makes you print or whatever. Um, There's something you can see there, but it doesn't look anything like a gun. Now, I think if somebody was informed, they'd know what it was. Um, I don't know that that would be any kind of real security risk or anything. And now that you know Texas no longer has only concealed carry, we have open and concealed, you wouldn't be in danger of somebody saying, oh, it was brandishing, because shit like that. Before the open carry thing happened in Texas, there were people that were arrested for brandishing because they went into a convenience store and were talking to the clerk, and he saw them print and you know, called the police, he had a gun, and then, you know, oh, well, he should have never saw it. So, you know, that's gone now. So I wouldn't worry about somebody realizing what it is and trying to, you know, get you on a brandishing charge or something like that. Um, and I think you probably wouldn't notice it. You'd have to be a very, very – the person that would notice it would probably notice most people carrying anyway. Because no matter how hard you try not to print, most people that carry, you can tell they're carrying if you're, if you're that, you know, intent on it. So I think the fact that you can carry, you know – with a shirt tucked in or out. I like the idea of that, but I, I just don't know. So anybody that's used this thing, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, especially if anybody's out there says, well, I, I got it. I carried it for a while with it, and I decided I won't carry with it anymore. I always like to hear that. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be that way for it, because again, it's very personal. But that helps people who are not sure if they want to spend the money on it decide whether they think it's going to be right for them or not. So, you know, best place for this one would be in the comments for today's show, episode 1920. One Jack got it right this time. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matt, Missouri. I just wanted, wanted uh, to leave my comment uh, about the interview with Toby. You know, we talked about pushing boundaries. Uh, in Missouri, we have a law that the right farm law is if you're not a nuisance in the first year, you can never be a nuisance as far as agricultural activities go. So I used that to my advantage. Uh, within the first year, I did almost nothing. Put in the garden. But in the second year, I did everything. Aquaponics, greenhouses, high tunnels. And when the city came knocking, I basically told them to F off. Here's the law. Oh, and by the way, here's these lawsuits that were filed in Missouri because of this, and here's uh, this, and here's this. And basically overwhelmed them with information to the point where it wasn't worth bothering me anymore. Thank you. Well, first, I love hearing victories like that, where the city comes, you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, here, I can't. Oh, well, okay, we we don't want you to do it, but we're going to leave now. And you shouldn't do this. I, I love that. But I worry about the long-term um, viability of this law. Michigan's right to farm 
uh, law eventually went down in flames, if I remember right. And it may be this type of thing that caused that. Um, the, the, the issue here then becomes, because when I hear this, it's going to seem totally unrelated, but the first thing I think of is the SIG uh, pistol brace that basically makes allows you to take a AR-15 pistol and put it over the buffer tube, and it's for your brace, and then basically you have an SBR, a short-barreled rifle, that you don't need special paperwork for. And when SIG came out with this thing, everybody went, oh, you can't do it. Well, you know, they went to the ATF, and the ATF came back with an opinion statement and said, well, um, you know, uh, it's a legitimately a pistol brace. It doesn't matter what a brace looks like. Um, it's not a stock, so it's legal. So then everybody made a big deal about it. Well, then the ATF came back and said, well, no, you can't do this anymore. And they were reminded of what they'd previously said, and that legally checked out. So then the, the final opinion was, well, you can have this, and you can put it on your AR-15 pistol, and you can use it the way it's designed to fire as, a, as an arm brace. But if you put it to your shoulder at that point, it magically, through the unicorn powers of the universe of government, transforms into a short-barreled rifle because you fired it as such. And I know that seems unrelated, but I worry when I hear laws like this that are beneficial if they're, if they're thrown too much in the face of the system, they can come back to bite you with, well, that law was never intended to do that, or, you know, the right city getting in touch with the right state legislatures, creating things that say, because it, it almost does seem unreasonable if that's the way the wordage actually is. You can never be a nuisance. So you're telling me if I, uh, if I put a thousand cows on a thousand square feet to where they're standing on top of each other, ten thousand cows on ten thousand square feet, and, and they're, they're standing into their armpits up and shit, and shit's like flowing off my property, uh, I can't be a nuisance. Now, it's possible that the wording is that way, and with, with intelligent interpretation, government, not always gonna do that, would be, well, that just violates so many other ordinances laws. Right? You just can't be a nuisance. If you're, if you're conducting legitimate agricultural activity and you're, you're in line with other laws and regulations, then you can't just be a nuisance because you're there. Then I think it's a good solid law and it'll probably stand up. And I'm all for whatever we can do to fight the system and assert our rights because I believe on our property we should be able to do whatever we want to do as long as we're not hurting anybody else. And the fact that when you drive by, you look at my greenhouse and you don't like it. Or it bothers you that there's a goat in my yard. If my goat's not climbing over your fence eating your daisies, you know, or legitimately I'm not causing some kind of a major stink problem. Because that I can understand how somebody would say, hey, you are aggressing on me. i got to smell your stink. Now, if you move out to the farms already and there's cattle operation there and it's stunk when you move there, I don't think you have anything to stand on. But, you know, somebody bring in a cattle operation on a couple acres in the middle of town and legitimately causing a stink, I think that... That's where you start to say, hey, maybe we do have something here. Maybe we need some, uh, we need, we need to have some sort of, uh, uh, arbitrator come in and, and figure out a solution to this because there is a problem for both sides here. But the, 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 the stuff that people get attacked for today, you know, your garden's in your front yard, so it looks wrong. You don't have a right percentage of grass in your front yard. No, I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. 
You have to have at least 75% of your front yard in grass. Who the hell are you to tell me that? I, I like pushing these wherever we can. My, my preference, though, is for people to find places where they can be left alone and just not poke the beast in the eye too often because that tends to backfire, as we've seen time and time again. The problem is we're getting to the point where we're going we're to have to say, you know what, we're not just going to poke the beast in the eye. We're going to take a pitchfork and we're going to shove it in the beast's, beast's eye and his other eye and his nose and his ass and his scrotum, okay, because you're not giving us any place to go anymore. The places you can go and be left alone are shrinking, and there's going to be a point where there's going to have to be a backlash, And that's why I think we need to build the numbers of people that are friendly to these technologies and these activities now so that when that backlash comes, there's enough momentum on the backsnap to maybe smack the beast down on this issue for at least a generation. That, that would be my hope. For, forever, I have very big doubts in forever anything, but for at least a generation or two. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. David here from Indiana. Self-driving vehicles. First a question and then a comment I'd like your thoughts on. To begin with, how would you expect or want to see a self-driving vehicle handle the following hypothetical? You're approaching an intersection on a windy day, and the power's out, so stoplights aren't working. There's a woman with a baby carriage passing from right to left, and she's now in the middle of the left lane. As you approach the intersection, a large limb falls, missing the woman, but directly blocking your path. So a large oak blocks your path to the right, The limb in front of you blocks your path, and the lady in the carriage blocks your path to the left. What would you do? I think I would probably hit the brakes and accept running over the limb to minimize damage and avoiding the woman in the oak tree. But what do you think a self-driving car would do? Could it choose the better of these bad three options? Second, how do you think insurance and liability will be addressed with driverless cars? Personally, I see a problem with this because I think passengers in a driverless car would want to remain blameless in the event of an accident. The problem is that there has to be someone on the hook for damage or loss of life due to computer glitches. How do you sue a computer? Are manufacturers going to be liable? Anyway, uh, finally, I learned in a recent interview regarding this that when there are no lines paved on the roads, driverless cars cannot function, leaving large segments of America cut off from this technology. I also learned that the cost to paint all the roads would basically make it impossible. So if this is the case, how do you integrate all the driverless and drivered cars? So finally, you mentioned with uh, one of your recent interviews with Nick Ferguson that he'd come a long way in terms of his presentation and polish, and I'd like to offer you the same compliment on your show. I've been listening for years and enjoy it more and more every day. Keep up the good work, Jack, and thanks for all you do. Okay, I, I'm not going to be mean to the caller here, okay? But I want to start out, we're going to get the first scenario. There's a lady with a baby carriage crossing the street, and a tree drops a limb in front of her that doesn't hit her. And this, Okay, I'm going to answer the spirit of your question, but before I do, I'm going to remind the entire audience, and some of you have never heard this before, of something that when I was a little kid, a little kid as a teenager, uh, an apprentice in shop class, and I used to have a lot of time with the shop teacher's name was Mr. Fox. What I mean by apprentice is I took shop one and shop two, and then my senior and junior years, like I couldn't didn't ha couldn't take it anymore, but I could go down there as an apprentice and help teach the other kids, and I liked being in shop, and I had not that many classes I had to take, so that's what I did. And so since I was down there as an apprentice, 
I was able to spend a lot of time talking to this guy. He was a hunter. He was a fisherman. He was a good mentor to me. That's why we talked a lot. And I would always go, but what if this and what if that? I remember one day we were having a debate about the 308 versus the 306. And I'm like, well, what if? And finally he goes, come over here. So make sure the other kids don't hear it. And he says, Spirico, I want you to remember this. If your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. I've never forgotten that. That's why he was a good mentor. Never forgotten that. We can what if ourselves to death. And the scenario you just laid out is so million to one that I know it would be important to you if you ended up with that lady being your mom, okay, or your sister or your daughter or your wife. But in the totality of numbers of people that die in automobile accidents, if, if, if let me put it to you another way, an actual if. If we could take the, the deaths on highways from 36,000 to 40,000 a year, to about 3,000 a year because of scenarios where there's a what if and the machine makes the wrong decision, which way is better? That, that would be another what if to look at. That's actually a tougher one to answer because the, the survival-minded individual in me says, but I get to make a choice about what I'm doing in that scenario. Well, I also get to decide whether I'm going to drive my vehicle or the computer drive it. So I, I think it's pretty far-flung, but I think that if you... If you lay the scenario out that way in front of a court of law, and if the individual driving was able to ascertain that, and I think if he hit the tree or the branch, either one, the court would have said he did the right thing. And if he had the opportunity to do that but chose to hit the woman, they'd probably say he had the, done the wrong thing. So I think if we can actually define parameters in advance, we can say what the legal answer would be. But do you want to be in the car that makes the decision that way? I don't know. I don't know. But what I would do, the first thing I would do is hit the hell out of the brakes. That's the first thing I would do. Okay, is hit the hell out of the brakes. So let's continue with your next, because you got a bunch of stuff going on here. I think it's completely reasonable to, to on the insurance thing how that would work. I don't think that's even that, that's even hard to figure out. So what you're saying is, well, the passenger would not be at fault, um, and, and then therefore the manufacturer would be at fault. I don't think it's that simple. I think there's three tiers here. Okay, Do you own the car? Do you own the car? And thereby are you responsible for the upkeep and maintenance of the vehicle? Okay, this is not, Let's start off with the way things are right now. You're driving down the road. Somebody walks out in front of you. They should have walked out in front of you, but you should have time to hit the brakes. You hit the brakes. Nothing happens. The brakes fail. You run the person over flat dead. Who's responsible? It's very simple. It depends. You have failed to perform maintenance on the vehicle as required. Uh, there were warning indicators. When they plug in the computer, it, sh it shows that there's been a, a, a brake light mentioned. And you're out. If your state has state inspections, you haven't had the inspection done on your vehicle. Your vehicle has not been maintained according to what the manufacturer says you're supposed to do. And you own the vehicle. Therefore, you're at least partially liable. Now, when a full investigation's done, if it's determined that no matter what you did, the vehicle still should not have failed or failed the way that it did, it may be the manufacturer's liability, okay? Or it may be the liability co-shared between the two of you. With an autonomous vehicle, it's not much different. If it's a self-driving Uber car that comes and picks you up, Well, who's responsible for the maintenance? 
the upkeep and making sure the vehicle stays in spec. Uber is, right? If the vehicle fails because it didn't work as the manufacturer said it would, then it's the manufacturer's liability. How is that covered from an insurance standpoint? The owner of the vehicle will carry insurance on the vehicle, just like now, and the manufacturer will carry other business insurance to cover liabilities from lawsuits, etc. So this is not complicated. It's not as complicated as people on TV want to make it out to be. I mean, if a redneck hippie duck farmer can figure it out, surely an attorney can. The, the next part about, well, when there's no lines drawn on the road, the driverless car just doesn't know what to do with itself. And there's just huge parts of America. Where, I, I'm going to tell you, I actually laughed when I heard this. I actually laughed when I heard this. Because the reality is, all you're talking about, first of all, is technology that has not yet been invented. And if we need lines for vehicles to drive themselves, then one way or another, markets are going to market and there will be lines. That makes me think of Marauds, right? Marauds. Like, if we didn't have the government to build roads, then there would be no roads. Well, in this case, not only can private industry not come up with a way to build roads, but they can't come up with a way to get painted lines on roads. If this ends up being the way the winds blow, and I think that it will, one way or another, there will be lines. We'll either have a line tax, right? I'm, you don't think I'm kidding. Don't you think I'm kidding for a minute? Uh, or there will be uh, private money initiatives to enable these vehicles for greater market penetration. In other words, Ford, Chevy, etc. will pay for the lines. Because, uh, you know, by the foot, road paint ain't that expensive. However, it may not even be necessary. Because, but they can't do it without lines. Well, they couldn't do it at all yesterday couple years ago anyway. So all you're talking about is we need to figure out how these vehicles can continue to evolve in their ability. Because how do you drive without lines? How do you drive on a road without lines? You look at the road. The computer in your mind determines the distance between the roads. You can determine that's a shoulder or what have you. And you know where your vehicle is supposed to be. And to be honest, isn't it easier for you to drive on a road with good lines on it? Isn't that part of restoring our infrastructure? Donald Trump's about to pump a trillion dollars in infrastructure recovery. Maybe they could paint some lines with it. I don't know. But I can tell you this. If lines are what's required to make this happen, then lines will happen. I'll also say this. The day of the vehicle with no option for the human to take over, that's far away. That's very far away. Um, I don't think we'll have autonomous vehicles that are not able to be taken over by a human for 20 or 30 years or maybe even more. So that then it's not a problem. Then the, the vehicles will know through computer interfaces where they can drive and where they can't drive. And when the vehicle gets to a point where it can't drive, it'll pull over and, and basically not go anymore. It'll refuse. You'll have to engage the operator capability and go on from there. Someone will. Automated services like you know Uber or Ford's planned service or, by the way, Mercedes planned service or, by the way, BMW's planned service. Yes, yes, yes. All of them have it. Top-end car companies having their own car share services coming at, coming to you soon. Um, they will just not provide service in areas that the vehicles can't safely operate. I want to bring something else up, too, because there's a 
there's a whole group of people, and I'm not saying it's the caller. I think these are legitimate questions. There's a whole group of people that want to stick their fingers in their ears about this and go, la, 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 it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. La, 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 la. One is a guy I respect a great deal. Um, he's a local uh, radio guy right here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. He's been right 99% of the time that he's made any predictions about the where the car industry is going. He's been in the automotive industry since the early 1970s. He developed technology in the 80s when computers first came out that would allow car companies to sell cars online, including letting you pick your paint colors and options. They poo-pooed him and told him to go away. 20 years later, they had to figure out how to do it without him because he said, I'm not in that industry anymore. I don't do that anymore. I just talk on the radio now. He's another one of these guys poo-pooing the self-driving car. It won't work. There's just this this entrenched dogma that it won't work. Well, the thing came out today. Uh, Uber, with their self-driving vehicles, has been kicked out of California because California pulled their re uh, registrations, and it's because California doesn't want self-driving vehicles there, blah, 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 blah. It's totally misunderstood. It's totally misunderstood. Here's what happened. California had said, and San Francisco in particular had said, if you're doing self-driving vehicles here, you have to register them with us unless they are also safeguarded by a human. If there's a human sitting in the driver's seat that can take over the car at any time, then you don't have to. So Uber said, well, guess what? Here, Pittsburgh, everywhere we're testing this, that's what we're doing. We don't want to be sued. So we have a driver in all the driverless vehicles right now sitting there able to take over if something goes wrong. So we don't have to register And San Francisco said, you better register anyway. And even though the law says that Uber is right between the city and the state, they came down on Uber and said, either register or you're out of here. Now, what do they mean by register? It's a special program. Just So California's not trying to get rid of them. But with California, if you register, you have to report every time your vehicle leaves, where it goes, how far it travels, and if there's any incident, what that incident was. Now, obviously, if the incident is it ran somebody over, if it hit a baby in a carriage instead of a tree branch, that would be reported anyway. But any minor incident whatsoever, the vehicle went out of the lane for a couple seconds. Okay, By registering, it would require Uber, who is developing its own uh, technology, to disclose that information to the state, thereby making it publicly available information available to its competitors. So Uber said, screw you, we're not doing it, we don't have to. California said, either do it or we're going to pull your re registrations on these vehicles so they're not legal on the street anymore. And Uber said, fine. So California said, fine. And they did it. And uh, and, and, you, you know, and Uber's leaving, but Uber's basically the one that said, bye, Felicia. They just said, we'll just go somewhere else and do this. We're not going to play your games with this crap. We're not going to give away all this data, all these data sets and all these data points about how our vehicles are functioning as publicly available information when we have competitors trying to be the first to market with a fully rollable out fleet across the country. And, and that's, that's where we're at with all of this. And, you know, Uh, lastly, as to your kind words at the end there, thank you very much. I, I, I do my best. Um, I felt yesterday that I was not at the top of my game, and I felt a few times recently with illnesses and all I wasn't. And I really do my best every day to give you guys the best show I possibly can, and I appreciate the kind words. And I don't want any of my kind of sarcasm or anything that I had in this answer. to It does not apply to you personally. These are perfectly valid questions, but the main reason that people have them is because There's a whole segment of society that doesn't want this to happen. 
and it's it's the unions, it's the taxi drivers, it's 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 people in power. This actually takes power from the state. It, it, you, you think about the fact that there'll be less vehicles on the road. That's what this eventually leads to: less vehicles on the road, less accidents, and less tickets to write. Registrations go down. This takes power from the insurance companies, because yeah, you brought up valid points about the insurance companies, but if there's less vehicles, there's less vehicles to insure. And, and the insurance companies can say whatever they want about safe driver discounts, and what, what they want is lots of people that have to drive being mandated by the state to carry their insurance. Well. Take a third of the vehicles off the road. No, Jack, no. Yeah. Yeah, long term, yeah. What you're talking about is private public transportation. I'll let you beat that one around in your head until next year when I come back. Now let's take another call. Hey, good afternoon, Jack. Boyd in Wisconsin. I just want to comment in on left-handed dominant, left-handed shooting. Um, and let listeners know that I've been shooting my entire life. First gun owned at 10 years old, about 40 years old now. Everywhere from pump to rubber, bolt action, every gun I've ever owned, currently owned, and have ever shot has always been a right-handed gun, and I have never once had a shell come into my face. Thousands around military experience, eight and a half years in the military. Um, so just wanted to pass that along to all your listeners. There's no reason for anybody, any left-handed shooters, to worry about buying a left-handed gun. Nothing that anybody can handle. Thank you. Okay, I'll agree with that about 99%. And it's pretty much what I said when it comes to semi-autos, uh, when it comes to lever actions. Uh, I, I don't really see the need. When it comes to handguns, I think most people today with your semi-auto handguns, because of realities of combat, should it ever come down to it, have gone to ambidextrous safeties anyway. So I, I think that's about the only place where it's really that big a deal. Uh, I think it's probably not that hard to learn to work a slide release uh, with with one of your your fingers on your on your left hand um, compared to I mean it's obviously set up for that that thumb on the right. There's a lot of ambidextrous handguns today anyway, so they don't have to be left-handed. So I, I'm I'm good with all that, and I guess even the majority of the time with bolt guns, I'm good with that. I guess this would be the way I'd look at it though. If I was a left-handed shooter, if I had if I had if I had vision in my left eye period, right? If I had left eye dominant vision and and I was uh, going to have to shoot left-handed. And you know, I've picked up a and I can't see out of my left eye so I it, I I can't even get a sight picture, but I can hold the damn thing like I'm going to shoot it left-handed. And when I go to work that bolt, no matter how I do it, it's awkward. It's awkward. It may be awkward because I haven't done it my whole life, and I've done it the other way my whole life. I, and I know you might adapt to it, but I just think to myself, self, if, if you were a left-handed shooter, when you decided, like, this is going to be my rifle that I carry all the time. This is going to be my deer gun. This is going to be my mountain rifle. This is going to be, if I go on a trip for elk, this is what I'm going to reach for. This is what I'm going to take. And if that was going to be a bolt gun... I think that if it was for me and I was going to have that gun my whole life, I would I would want to maybe make the investment and buy myself a left-handed bolt action because I want to. You know, I want to. And I, I that's where I think it really comes down to. And I'll tell you why I think it has to be like the gun that you figure, I'm going to keep this gun for the rest of my life. And I know we always think that when we buy a new gun, those of us that are gun people and have had lots of guns, and you start thinking about guns you've traded, guns you've sold, and you go, eh, it's not always true. And even the gun that you think you're going to keep your whole life, the one good thing about having a gun habit 
is that that gun's always worth something. You can always go somewhere, and you can always turn a gun into cash, right? You can always go to a gun show or a gun store or a pawn shop and say, I have this gun. And sometimes you get a shitty offer, and you won't take it. You have to go somewhere else. Maybe you have to shop it around a bit to get you know, a fair price on, on a used gun. But a gun holds value. Not all of its value. Some guns go up in value, but you know most guns, they depreciate a little bit, and then they kind of hold a steady value. And if they're special guns or guns that go out of production or whatever, then they maybe they appreciate some, but they, they hold value. If you're selling a right-handed bolt-action gun, you have millions and millions and millions of people that will be interested in it. You have a much smaller piece of the pie, and selling something is always finding someone that wants to buy it. And when you're selling to a shop, they're thinking the same way. So it may have a little less resale value or be a little bit harder to resell a left-handed gun. And I know what people would say, but for the lefty, it's a dream come true. If I can get a left-handed gun at a discount, I've always wanted one, then fine, but you haven't done so yet, so you're not looking very hard. That's what I'm thinking as a dealer. And for me as a private party buyer, let's say we're you know buying private party purchase, uh, we're completely legal here in Texas, and I'm thinking, I have no need of that. I haven't, now, my wife's left-handed. She's not going to shoot. I know. I'm not, I've, I've tried that for so long. She has her .22, and she shoots some of my other guns, but she's not going to go hunting or anything like that. I just It's not that I don't know that there's value there. I don't personally want to spend my personal dollars on it. So that would be the reason not to. That's the reason to go back to what the caller said. So, And I think we should always look at things that way from multiple angles. With that, let's take another call. Jack, this is uh, Matt from Newport, Rhode Island, uh, the senior chief that is currently being medically retired. Uh, just want to let you know, uh, got a lot of respect for you. Listening to the episode you just posted, Toby Hemingway, and uh, you're a class act. I got to tell you, this community, class act. I'm looking forward to working with you guys more often, having a little more time from the medical retirement. But uh, seeing things like this, what you do for Toby Hemingway and, and his wife and, and the community, uh, thank you. Um, Take care, enjoy the holidays, and I hope everyone has a good holiday. Well, first, thank you both for your service and for your kind words. And in that medical retirement, I, I wish you the best in finding something that you can do, knowing that you have some portion of your needs covered. That's a lot of freedom, and that's a lot of opportunity. And when you have freedom and opportunity, as I always say, then that comes with corresponding responsibility. So make the most of it, man, because... You know, it's it, it's it's not something everybody gets an opportunity to partake in. It, I'm, whatever reason you're being medically retired, it, it, it's probably fitting that they provide that to you. But you know, take it, run with it, and do something with it. Well, number two on the you know what I did for I didn't do anything, and I so I almost didn't play this call because like you're praising me and I didn't do anything as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I want to make sure they use this. As, first of all, I thought you wanted to be heard, or you would have called, so I put you on to be heard. Second of all, I if anybody else is under the I didn't set up that fundraiser that uh, that that youcare.com or whatever youcaring.com uh, fundraising page that was set up by Toby's webmaster. All I did was make people aware of it, and I'm not taking any credit for any portion of what was done because I saw hundreds of people sharing that. Uh, Curtis Stone put it out, Nick Burtner put it out, Nick Ferguson put it out. I mean, I saw it on Facebook from like every known person that I know in the permaculture field, the regenerative agriculture field. So I think that's what generated a huge generosity toward Toby and his spouse. I would point out this. 
And it might just be a natural flow that there was like a big spike. But I've noticed the donations since they announced Toby's deceased have gone like really down really fast. And I, Toby was not a wealthy man. I mean, people think a guy writes a couple books and he's successful with it, that you know, he's got it made. His books aren't Harry Potter books or something like that. It's not you know, like they sell a thousand copies a week or something, even after everybody seems to have a copy. And uh, he did a lot of good. And people that do the kind of work he does, you don't get rich. You don't get wealthy. So... You know, if, if you want to help, I still think it's worth donating to help his wife. She's, she's a great woman and she has to figure out basically now what to do without the person that she dedicated her life to. Um, and, uh, it's a tough situation to be in. It's a very tough situation to be in. So anyway, I, I, I do thank you for your kind words. As far as being more of a part of our community, please do so. If you can get to one of our events, come on down here, hook up with other members of this audience and kind of use this as an opportunity to say that. It amazes me the relationships that I've seen develop between members of this community with each other. Um, you know, seeing people just even just talking to each other on Facebook and stuff like that and meeting up and doing stuff together and realizing like that, that, that the TSP group of communities is like the nexus by which all these people come together. And, and that's when I know we're doing it right. That's when I know we're doing it right. So please be a bigger part of it. And those of you out there that just listen, realize there's no real people that are part of this community. Get on Zello. Start talking to them. Get on the TSP Zello channel. Get on the forum. Come over to Facebook and join the, the, the listener forum. Uh, and, and get out, you know, meetups and, and, and find people you can actually meet up with and drink a beer. You know, get on Granddaddy's Gun Club and, and, and set up a meet and get out and do some shooting together and, and pass a gun down or something and just start to form your own groups, guys. We, we, we have a lot of ground to cover in the coming decades. And yes, I said it decades. I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> I don't know where any of those, uh, those, uh, what do you call them, uh, rumors started up or whatever, but TSP's not going anywhere. Jack Spierko's got a hell of a lot of work ahead of him, and so does the rest of this community. So, sir, thank you for being part of it, and thank you for your service. Hi, Jack. This is Don from the Confederate States of Inebria, and I just wanted to ask real quick. This might be one for the Haddis, but uh, anyway, have you heard about the Anchor Powerhouse? I saw it on Amazon. It's a, apparently a compact 400-watt-hour uh, portable outlet you can Generate alternative, rechargeable. It's a power source. Uh, let's see. It has 40 phone recharges, 15 laptop recharges, power mini fridge, seven hours, 15 hours of uh, 15 volt light, or no, 100 hours of 15 volt light. Anyway, just wanted to see what you thought about it. Thanks again for all you do. Take care. So I am, uh, I'm not going to give this to Stephen Harris because I know it will create a Harris rant about how if you buy this thing, you're a sucker and you should build your own and on and on and on. And I'm not that negative on it, though I'm not going to tell you to spend your money on it. So I, I think I could be more fair to the device than, than Steve can. And I'll, I'll tell you kind of how I look at it. The first thing I'm going to tell you is if you want one of these things, uh, they sell on Amazon for $4.99. And they sell direct from Anchor's website at anker.com for $3.99. So for the love of God, if you're going to buy one of these, do not go to tspaz.com to help Jack and buy it through Jack's link. Go save your 100 bucks and buy it directly at Anchor. Um, I don't know that you're going to want to do that when you're done hearing me talk. But let me tell you what I think you're buying here. You're buying an impressively high-powered, compact, 
and for what it provides lightweight battery for $400. That has some interfaces on it, so you don't have to put them there. You don't need an inverter. It's got a built-in one. You don't need USB ports. It's got built-in USB ports. It's got 12-volt plug. Uh, it's got input for your charger, so it's got a built-in charger. And all of that into about 9, 10 pounds. That's, that's kind of impressive. What starts to throw the hackles up on my hair with anything is when I start seeing companies use excuses um, to put giant numbers in places. So they give uh, some of the power specs in watt hours, and they give some of the specs in amp hours. And we all know that the way you really judge a battery is in amp hours. And that makes... With some finagling, you know, basically battery to battery comparable. And what they say is it has a 120,000 milliamps. Okay. 120,000 milliamp hours. Okay. That means it has a, it's a 120 amp hour battery. A large kind of top end $100 marine battery that you buy from Walmart for a hundred bucks. We'll have, depending on what you get, 140, 150 amp hours. So it's less, not significantly, but slightly less than one marine grade battery, which you can buy for 100 bucks. Okay. You can buy two of them for $200. And then you can put together a charger, 50 bucks. And as far as charging and an inverter, 50 bucks. And then something to roll it around in because it's a lot heavier than this. You know, kind of a Tupperware suitcase, uh, you know, like the the rolling toolbox type of thing. Call it another fifty bucks, and so now you're up to three hundred fifty bucks. Okay, and you got more than double the power. You're at fifty dollars less as far as things like USB charging, and we most of us have stuff to do that. You know, we're adding a, a twelve volt charger to it. You know, it's not that complicated. And then you have something. This is where I really think. Building your own takes over. When the battery fails, not if, when the battery fails, you can take your two or one, depending on how heavy you want it to be, marine batteries out of the box that you put together. You know exactly how everything works. You unscrew them. You take it back to Walmart if there's a warranty. You get a prorated warranty against buying a new battery. Or if it's dead and out of warranty, you get your poor deposit. You get a new battery for 100 bucks a piece. You put them back in, and you go on with life. When the battery fails in this, you are F-U-C-K-E-D. As far as I can tell, there is no replacement part. You cannot buy the battery that goes in this thing. For all intents, it is a battery with fancy shit on the front. So, while if you build a full, all-out, portable battery bank, you will probably be into it if you do it kind of top-end. Good shoe marker charger, you know, good portable case, what have you, you will be into it for almost as much money. It will be heavier. It will be less convenient, but it will have twice as much power. It will be vastly more flexible than what it will do. And it's user serviceable. Any component in it that breaks is swappable because you put it in there and you know what it does. If your, if your uh, inverter goes out on it, 50 bucks. Your inverter goes out on this. I looked at reviews on it. 
electrical engineering type guy takes it apart and goes, there ain't nothing in here that's user serviceable. Where does it shine? That's a lot of power in a nine-pound box. I'm going to be dead honest. Now, I don't know if it really does what it says it does, but if it does, for the camper, right, for the person who goes camping and, you know, doesn't camp right next to their car and wants to, you know, is willing to carry 10 pounds but is not willing to carry, you know, drag a huge thing. Okay, you know, I mean, it's portable, It's extremely portable. But, I, you know, I laugh because I look at it on their website, and they have these picture, and they have these people camping, and right behind them is a car. And I'm thinking, well, I could just have a just a, just a freaking marine battery, just like sitting on the floor of the car, and I could have a... a Battery charger, which most people that are in preparedness mind anyway probably have these things already, and an inverter, and I can just let the car idle during the day and charge the battery up using the charger, and, and, and I mean, I don't actually need to spend any real money at all. I could just hook the inverter up to the car and have a $50 inverter and have all the power that I could possibly want for camping, for God's sakes. But yeah, I don't want the car idling all night at the campground and it bothers other campers. And I don't want to risk ruining my, my battery in my car down. So I, I could just have a, a battery that I charge off the car. It, it really is that simple. And it's, it just seems to me that like you'd have to give me some sort of very specific need. They show a guy sleeping with a CPAP machine. Um, you probably could run a CPAP machine for maybe two nights on a single charge. Um, I would, if, if for me personally, if I had to rely on a piece of medical equipment to keep me alive, I wouldn't want to rely on this. If it was all that was there, I would use it. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a noble idea. I, I think that battery technology is improving. Uh, I don't think this company's ripping people off. I think that they're probably making a reasonable profit when they're selling it directly on their website anyway for what they've got into it because this stuff's not inexpensive to produce. But I think if you're comparing it over something like a self-built battery bank that it, it just doesn't. It just doesn't compare. And then on top of all that, on top of all that, Building things yourself teaches you not just like how to build it, but again, how to service it, how to maintain it. And I just think there's an incredible value in, in being able to maintain that what you've built. And I, I just think this thing's not there yet. Now, if it, let me put it a different way. If this thing was 150 bucks and was as good as they claim it to be, I wouldn't just be buying it, I'd be selling it. I'd be saying you got to get one or two of these things. This is great. But it's it's not that great. Here's another problem that I've seen, and I've seen it from more than one person. Anything that's over a 5-amp draw won't work out of the 12 VDC plug, and it absolutely should, but it doesn't. Now, the, the response from Anchor to these their, their inquiries, well, you know, you can only pull 120 volts across there. That's fine. It doesn't mean I can't pull 5 amps. So I just think, and I also think it's kind of being marketed as like, well, you can run a mini fridge with it for seven hours. Who the hell's going to do that? I mean, 
are you really going to run a mini fridge with your one power device for seven hours? Does, does that make sense? I mean, this is a device for computers and laptops and, and smart tablets and maybe small lights and stuff like that. And, and what you have to understand is, well, yeah, sure, you can, you can charge your iPhone 24 times, but you can't charge your iPhone 24 times and run your mini fridge for seven hours and charge your flashlight 21 and a half to charges and run a table lamp for 100 hours. You can do any one of those things. Every time you do part of one of those things, what you can do with the rest of it goes down. Your best backup power source is the $30,000 plus generator sitting in your driveway, and you probably have two of them. It's a car and an inverter. And you'd have to get a lot more advanced for me to spend my money on this thing. But if it fits a specific need better than any other option, I wouldn't call you wrong for purchasing it. I just wouldn't do it myself. And maybe I just haven't come across the thing that would make me purchase it for myself. I would like to be able to get my hands on the battery that's inside of this thing. I think that's where the mojo is. And maybe that's why they're not available. Maybe that's why they're not available as a replacement part. Um, so that's, that's what you're looking at is where can you get a 120-amp-hour battery, if, if that's what it really is, that weighs under 9 pounds for a couple hundred bucks. Because i got to believe there's more money in the box than just a couple hundred dollars. So that that's what you're looking at. What is the advancement in batteries coming to? It, clearly, it's an AGM. It, it has to be based on the way this thing works and how it, how it can be handled and things like that. Um, but not me, not my money. I, I think they make a really good marketing ploy with it, with people taking selfies and boats and shit like that. But in the end, I I don't see this as being worth four to five hundred dollars, depending on where you buy it and when you pay for it. Let's take another one. Jack Brian in Delaware. I am calling about the listener call show. I believe it was on the fifth of December, specifically on the rebuttal of the gentleman who answered the other gentleman's question about remote cows and calves based on Jeff Lawton's description. I did not hear Jeff Lawton's description on this, but I did hear the rebuttal of the other gentleman, and I thought I could share some insight. I inherited my grandfather's farm in 2009. This farm was an established farm of 60 years in my family. I live 55 miles away door-to-door. I go there roughly three times, four times a week in the summer, and about every four days in the winter. I have remote cattle. It's exactly what I do. I have belted Galloways and Black Angus cattle. I have about 15 head of cattle on 22 acres. The farm is 40 acres, but the pasture is 22. I have roughly 700 gallons of water uh, in several tubs that I fill. I do just fine. They are remote. Uh, I handle, uh, you know, any vaccination, any type of issues on my own. Now, keep in mind, I did inherit the business, which came with tractors and head shoots and gates and barns and equipment. So it was kind of a turnkey operation. I'm not paying my bills with it. It's just a side gig. I get some beef. I sell a calf here and there at the auction. But I've been doing it since 2009, so that's seven years. 
uh, and really have had no issues. Now, I had a lot of my cows were already calving and had been and had had multiple calves through the years before I got them. So I've not had any calving issues. Um, really, it's been absolutely no problem for me. But I do understand the other gentleman's point that if things aren't established, um, you could have some issues. But I'm able to pull it off. Well, I don't know how many more people I'll put on the air with this, but I figured at least one because it lets me make a pretty interesting observation here that really has nothing to do with cows and calves and dairy or cattle operations or calf operations or anything like that. It has more to do with the the the, the perception bias based on where you are and what you perceive. So we have three different people weighing in here. Jeff Lawton coming out of the tropics in, uh, in Australia and, and, of course, worked all over the place, but most of the experience in tropic situations where when done right with proper rotation, cattle pasture gets pretty awesome pretty quick, and it grows all year round. And with the right set up with water for their three months of dry season, you really have something. You really have something. And then we have a guy that asked us a question originally, And he's in North Texas. And the guy that chimes in and says, you really better think about this before you do it, he's in central Oklahoma. Very, very similar climates. And this is a hard place for all the talk about cattle in Texas. If you're going to do pastured cattle, it is a tougher environment because we have such long, hot summers. It's really difficult. And it has a lot to do with where are you? Are you in the Blackland Prairie? Are you in the East Texas Pines? Are you out here in the alkaline shithole, right? I mean, it, it, I mean seriously, how, how much lush pasture do you think you can grow when you have limestone rock a foot or two under the soil? Or if you're like me, you know, uh, four, four to 12 inches under the soil. It's, it's tough. So the, the person that's, you know, new to the business, it may be a lot more difficult. I think that's where the guy from Oklahoma is chiming in from. And then this last fellow, he chimes in from where? Delaware. Do you know how much it rains in the Northeast? I mean, it's unbelievable. When the rest of the country's in drought, they're not. And, I mean, if you go, you know, Delaware, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, it's just, it's green. It's just green. And it's, like, unless there's snow on the ground or it's frozen, it's green. It's lush. You sneeze and clover grows. You know? Um, so his perception might be a little bit different. And I think in the end, each person has to work out for themselves what they're doing and think about the investment they're making and should they really be doing it and you know what's their time commitment and what they can do. But the reason I kind of bring that up is it leads me into kind of what I wanted to end this, this year with, really, for me, because even though there'll be more shows, there's no more new shows. And that is, as you go into the new year, thinking about the concept that is you're having disagreements with people and you're thinking, how the hell can this person think that way? You know, it's one thing when you know the person's an idiot, but when you think this person is a relatively intelligent person, their perception coming from a different angle will change their viewpoint. And if we don't understand that, then we have a very hard time getting along with people with different sets of opinions. And that's fine with some random ass cloud on Facebook that you don't care about. But come this holiday season, it may very well be your brother, your mother, your uncle, your aunt, your cousin, your father's, uncle's, cousin's, former roommate, whatever, and you might actually, except for the last one, care about those people. 
And when you're having any kind of discussion where, especially if you try to avoid it, but they drag it into politics or something, especially with the heat that's going around the political world this year, and, and they start to sound like a lunatic to you, just realize they don't know what you know. They know what they know. And you don't know what they know. And it, it makes a lot of sense to just pull back and just let it the F go. And that's one way to look at this multiple perception, most multiple angle situation. But the other way to look at it, and you're going to hear me tell you tomorrow during the Christmas special show to just let all the planning for the new year and everything go and spend Christmas with your family. That's great. What I'm going to tell you today is when that's done, this time of year, the lag between Christmas and New Year's, generally even if you're working, things are a little slower, they're a little less fast-paced. You have time for the mind to work and the mind to think and the mind to plan. What do I want to make out of 2017? So do that. And, and in life in general, I think one of the things I've been trying to teach you guys here for so very long is to start to look at any problem or anything you want to accomplish and try to come at it from multiple angles. Because what happens is people, you say to somebody like, well, what do you want to do in life? Well, all I want is a little homestead. So they just, I'll give you one of the most popular dreams that we have here at TSP. Just one little, little homestead I can be left alone at and, uh, a couple acres of land that I want to be able to fish and hunt and, you know, what, the typical American dream, right? For people in our world anyway. Not everybody out there in our world has it, but a lot of us do. And they start telling you all the reasons they can't do it right now. This is, When you're, when you're having the argument with somebody and they're giving you all of this information that you already know and you know it's all invalid and because you know more than they do, but they won't listen. It's the same thing. My buddy David said to me when we were hunting this last time, he goes, we all have things that we're good at. And we all have things we like to do. You're a natural teacher. He said, I've seen you force people to learn. You know, I've seen you force them to learn. He said, I won't do it. I, I mean, once I've told you once, the hell with you if you don't want to know. He said, but I've seen you do it, and I've seen you say it three or four times, and I've seen it finally it goes in, and I go, well, he cared more than I did, and I guess he won. And my response was, David, I didn't win. The student did. The person that came to me to learn something, they gained. They won. Because they were able, and the reason that we have those conversations where he's talking about me trying to force something into somebody's head is they've talked themselves out of it for so long. Even though they want a solution, what they don't want to is to be talked into it. They want you to give them a solution that involves a someday, possibly maybe. They don't want you to give them a solution that involves, well, go do these five things, do it really well, and you'll be able to make it happen. Because that would that actually means, well, shit, that was right in front of me the whole time, and they're resistant to it. Because surely I would have seen that. And people are comfortable with a dream until they have to take a shot at it. When you start saying to yourself, what I'm, what I'm saying is, okay, look, if you look at something and you see this beautiful house, and you say, that's exactly, if I drew it, this is where I want to live, this is how I want to be there but I can't afford it. Instead of saying I can't afford it or I wish I could afford it, the question should be how can I afford it? Now, it's not magic. In some ways, it's like magic. But it's not magic because the answer might be, well, here's how I can afford it. Well, I don't want to effing do that. I don't like where that leads. So then, well, 
Then the next question becomes, how can I find something like that that I can't afford? How many different ways can we phrase the question to unlock the brilliance of the human mind so that we can have what we want? Or we can get as close to what we want as possible. When I was working in, you know, my last phase of the, 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 the real world, the real business world, so to say. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I asked myself a thousand different ways that I could get out of it. I, I, I spitballed so many things before I, you know, kind of fell into this, but it's because my mind was every day going, what could I do? 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 I mean, I was to the point, okay, so I'm sitting here making six figures as a COO of a tech firm. And I'm thinking, you know, I bet you if I got a power washer and a power sprayer and just drove around Arlington, I could make enough money cleaning and staining decks and fences to live on until I figure out what I want to do. And just a little investigation, I said to myself, yeah, the money's there. We could survive. But I didn't like where it led to. It led to seasonal work. It led to hiring employees. It led to, if I'm really going to find something I want to do, this is going to be in the way. But eventually, being willing to go that radical, I'll go from this white-collar job making six figures to basically redneck laborer work with a little trailer and a pressure washer and a, you know, and I, I, the thing is, if I really, I, I actually enjoy that a little bit. But not every day. If I really loved it, I probably would have went and did it. But I didn't really love it, so I would have found something else. But it was asking, well, I could do this. Could I do that? How can I do this? How can I do that? You know? If you'll ask those questions, it'll tear apart the perception bias that's been holding you back. So, yeah, tune in tomorrow. Listen to the Christmas special. Saturday is Christmas Eve. Sunday's Christmas Day. Spend them with your family. Let all this shit go. Come back next week. Listen to Rewind and start asking yourself, how can I? Instead of explaining why you can't. Go to the whatever you have something that's negative. Come up with a positive question on the other side of it. Change your perception. Change how you see things. And you might just change what's possible in your own life. With that, we've uh, rounded out the final, you know, live production show of 2016. Again, we'll have the Christmas special tomorrow. Rewind in the week between Christmas and New Year's, and we'll be back hitting it strong. Uh, I believe it's the second of January this year that we'll be back. Let me check into that real quick. Yeah, Monday, January 2nd, we'll return with a uh, listener feedback show. You can send in content for that. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure TSPC is in the subject line. And uh, got all kinds of stuff building up, but uh, keep them coming. And we'll come back with a really action-packed filled show on that day. Um, if you like this show and the work that we do and you want to help support us, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You can do that just by going to the survivalpodcast.com or tspc.co and clicking on Members. When you click on Members there, you can see all the great benefits you get. And it's not too late to buy uh, the Survival Podcast membership as a gift for somebody. If you want to do that, here's how you do it. It's really simple. Fill it out for yourself. Email me and tell me you want to convert it to a gift. Tell me the email address of the person that you want to give it to. 
I'll go into the account and I'll change it, and you can give them the information about the fact that now they can log in and they have it. How about that? It really could be that easy. You do it by mail, but it's kind of late for that. But check out the TSP Members Support Brigade. And to all of you who have been members over eight years now on the Survival Podcast, without you I could not do this. I thank you very much from the bottom of my heart as we round out this year. The other way that you can support our show is by going to tspaz.com whenever you're going to do your shopping on Amazon. T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Click on a link, go to Amazon, do your shopping, that's it. You don't have to think about us ever again that day. You, What you have done has helped support us. It's that easy, and if you like our show and listen to us, why not help support us by doing that? I also always have an item of the day up for review. Today I have out a kerosene heater, because it's winter, and it's really freaking cold. And I got to thinking about it, you know what? I told you guys many times about the Big Buddy heater. It's what I use here in Texas. And the reason I use it here in Texas is, well, it's a great product. And uh, propane you can get anywhere. And kerosene, K1 kerosene, very difficult to find at a gas station here. You have to buy it in like pre-filled cans in stores, and it's like eight bucks a gallon. That is not economically viable, in my opinion. But the performance of a good kerosene heater, when it comes to heating large spaces like in a house, blows away propane in a small space heater. It really does. Um, it just does. So if you live in a colder climate and you can get kerosene at a gas station... I recommend at least one of these as part of your winter preps. The alternative is freezing. And, you know, I know what some people are saying. "Uh, My God, Jack, don't you know how dangerous these things are? Well, listen, man. We live in a society where they put do not iron clothes while wearing them on irons. They really do. We have oven doors that say, do not stand on the oven door and use it as a stepladder. Yeah, really, my oven door has that warning level on it. Don't stand on your oven door. Do you think if kerosene heaters were death machines that there'd be any company in business making them today? They wouldn't have been sued out of existence. There is some safety concerns. CO2, kill us all. Take a breath. Let me ask you when the last time was you heard kerosene heater kills family of four with CO2. I tried to look for it. I found one in 1983, and it was seven people locked themselves in a room. So here's the rules for kerosene heaters. Do not use them in a small, small closed room. If you want to heat a smaller room, leave the freaking door open, okay? Don't close it in. You, they, again, they're very efficient. They heat about a 1,000 square feet. Uh, always make sure your wick's in good condition. It's not sooty. It's not you know, any kind of problem. Don't blame, burn your flame too high. If it's smoking, it's way too high. That's, when, that's the main time you get problems with excessive CO2 being produced. And crack a window just a little bit, maybe two of them. Let some air flow through the house. It's virtually impossible to CO2 yourself to death. And the last one there, it's probably not necessary, but it's such an easy thing to do. No good reason not to do it. We had one of these when I was in uh, Pennsylvania. I bought two of them. We had a 2,200-square-foot house. We had electrical baseboard heating. And we ran these quite often in the winter, even when the power was on, because it cut our – but the cost of the kerosene was less than the cost of electricity with those stupid baseboards. And the house just wasn't in a position where I, I could afford to upgrade the the, uh, the 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 heating system in it at the time. Really, really efficient, really efficient in, in how they burn uh, and how they heat. And they, they when we did have the power go out, we had a 2,200 square foot house, and I had one downstairs and one upstairs, and the whole house was comfortable. Pipes didn't freeze up, things like that. Now what's funny is so I wrote all this stuff up in my review, and most of the comments were pretty positive here. Here's one comment that I got. This is just, this is just great. Um, 
Jimmy T says, I don't care what you say, Jack. These things are far from safe. Yes, I've heard of people dying from them. Yes, they can start fires, burn people, and kill you with CO2. I will never use one ever. And I replied with, you are more than welcome to freeze to death. And I mean, that's, that's all that I can say there. Um, this is one of those things you have to decide for yourself what you want to do. And, again, I, I just have to say I come from a family Where, and I'm not talking about the new ones that are all, you know, special, like this one. Like, if you knock it over, it shuts itself off and all. Old school kerosene heaters. And, and we used them all the time. And, and everybody I knew used them. And I never heard of anybody, you know, asphyxiating themselves, except on the news. And it was always the same thing. You know, the family locks themselves in bedroom and shoves blankets under door to prevent cold from coming in, cranks up the kerosene heater, and ends up dead. Well, yeah, that, that would do it. Now, that that would get it done, right? So I just think that you need some sort of a backup heating uh, suggestion or some kind of solution if you don't have, you know, a wood stove or a coal stove or something like that. A, a fireplace is not a valid way to heat your home. Will it reduce your, your energy costs a little bit? Sure, yeah, to warm that one room up. So if you've always thought, well, it feels plenty warm in here with that fireplace going you know, in this room. Sure it does, but turn off all the heat and you'll see how quickly it starts actually pulling warm air out of your other rooms and actually cooling down your peripheral rooms. Unless you have a really good insert that actually is like halfway between a fireplace and a wood stove, then it starts to become valid. So have something, and if you don't have the wood stove, you don't have the time to do it or you don't have the inclination to do it or you're not going to do an insert for your fireplace or you don't have like a, you know, if you have propane space heaters and a thousand pound pig, well, you're good. You know, you're pretty good. Um, get one of these. I have links to both this one, and I have links to the Big Buddy heater. Again, those of you that are in, in – this is what I would say. If you're thinking about getting a kerosene heater, check availability of kerosene first. Find at least two stations where you can get kerosene within 30 minutes of your home. If you can't find that, I just don't recommend it. I just don't think it's very practical that way. Anyway, tspaz.com for all your shopping on Amazon to support the show, and do consider warming your home up with an alternative heating source – If power goes out, so like Jimmy T, you don't freeze to death. Uh, next up, let's let's. Uh, I am just tongue-tied at the last show. It's time for our song of the day, and uh, I decided by looking at all the suggestions for songs on Facebook yesterday, the one that I was going to play for you today is one more by Trans Siberian Orchestra as we head into the Christmas holiday. This is called Carol of the Bells. If you don't know what it is, the second you hear it, you're going to go, oh, yeah, that, I know what that is. Uh, there's been many different versions of this. One is very famous uh, from Home Alone, the, the original Home Alone with Macaulay Culkin, where he, he's at the church, and the old guy with the, the, the cut hand from the snow shovel is sitting there in church and talks to him, and he realizes the bad guys are coming, and he runs home. They play this song, not this version of it, but they play Carol of the Bells. It's festive. It's fun. It's Christmas. Enjoy yourself, and uh, while there'll be shows, I'll be gone. I'll catch you next year in 2017. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast to help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.